Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Amen. Well, in addition to it being Memorial Day weekend, it is also Pentecost Sunday. I know many liturgical traditions. Uh, this is this is the Sunday that celebrates um, the birth of the church. And actually, the 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 phrase uh, Pentecost comes from the Hebrew uh, Shavuot. Shavuot is um, the festival that happens 50 days after Passover. It's always marked with Passover, and so that happened just a couple days ago. What's significant about um, Shavuot or about Pentecost is it celebrates a couple things. It celebrates the giving of the Torah to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. It, it celebrates God coming down to them and revealing his will to them. It also celebrates, fast forward, uh, in Acts chapter 2, you have a bunch of disciples gathered around uh, going up to the temple on Shavuot to give their offering on that day, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they start speaking in tongues, and they start proclaiming the good news of Jesus the Messiah to their, to their fellow brethren in all these different types of languages, and, and not only does God work through them, but God comes even nearer, uh, the, the picture that happens at Sinai is that God comes near to his people. Actually, around that, there's a phrase in Exodus that says, build me a sanctuary that I might dwell in the midst of you. And it's something just incredible to consider that the God of heaven and earth would come down and want to dwell with his people. And something even more to consider that God doesn't stop there. He actually then comes upon his people in Acts chapter two, not to take up residence in a temple, but to make up residence within the hearts of people who are his. So we celebrate a God who desires to draw near. And as we um, recognize that today, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Ruth. Um, the book of Ruth. Uh, if you uh, are using a Bible in the pew in front of you, it's probably going to be somewhere around page 250. Uh, I mentioned last week in, in the Jewish ordering of the Older Testament, uh, it's it's located within a scroll that's more in the back of the Older Testament. In the um, Christian uh, order of the books of the Older Testament, which are the same books, um, it is right after Judges, which is really helpful for us because as we talked about last week, um, it begins by saying, in the days of the Judges. So we're going to talk not so much about that this morning. We're going to pick up the next several verses and talk about the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is a story of God's grace in the midst of famine. And we're introduced to a whole slew of characters in these first five verses that we're going to look at today. Um, but they're characters that will be developed, especially one whose name is Naomi and another whose name is Ruth. You get a lot of names in this first five verses, and most of them, the story ends there. But I want to kind of dwell on the first five verses because I think they have something to teach us about God's grace and understanding famine in our lives. And so uh, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 say this. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to live in the land of Moab for a while. 
The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the land of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab for about 10 years, both Machlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. Our Father and our King, I pray that you would teach us how to navigate and walk through the famines that we experience in our lives. God, teach us what it means to draw near to you in the midst of these opportunities in our life to get to know you better, no matter how difficult they may be. We praise you, God, because you are a God who delights to draw near. You are a God who delights in his people. You're a God who loves us without condition. And you extend grace to us when we were lost in sin. You made a way for us to be made right with you. We bless you and we thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So, last week we talked about making Jesus our passionate pursuit in the times of the judges. This morning I want to talk about famines. Famines are opportunities for us to draw near to God. Famines are opportunities for us to draw near to God. Now, famines in our life are, are kind of challenging things to talk about because they can take all different types of shapes and sizes. Um, we find in the first couple verses here within the book of Ruth that it's during the times of the judges, but that there was also a famine in the land. So to kind of help you see where we're at, again, historically with this, I want to share this with you. Uh, you have the exodus that occurs about 1446 BCE. You have the conquest of the land that occurs in about 1400 BCE. You have Joshua's death that occurs in about 1370. And Jephthah's another judge that we can kind of date pretty well in his work goes on around 1100. The time of the judges begins roughly after Joshua's death and the death of the rest of that generation of the elders of the Israelites. And it extends from there for several hundred years up until Saul is anointed as king. Re remember the frame of the judges or the refrain of the judges is there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So when Ruth opens up and it says in the time of the judges, they expect you to know that. They also kind of expect you to know, the author expects you to know that uh, in the middle of this, God had given certain commands to Israel. Uh, he'd given them in the Torah, especially towards the end of Deuteronomy, they're recorded. And one of the things is that um, famine was a way in which God would discipline his people should they choose to walk not in his ways. And so we find during the time of the judges where everybody does what's right in their own eye, there was a famine in the land, meaning the land of Israel, and you could begin to put together a couple pieces and go, oh, there's a lot of God's people who are gathered here who don't know God, who's choosing to walk in their way, and God is using famine as an opportunity to remind them that they need him in everything. Not only do they need him, but that God wants to be near to his people. That's not the only context for famine that we experience in our life, but that is certainly, I think, perhaps one of the biggest ones that's going on here, given the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. 
So Israel forsook God. As a result, God allowed the nations surrounding them to test them. Israel would cry out occasionally during this period of the judges um, to the Lord because of their oppression. But after they would cry out, God would send a deliverer. They might have a time of peace. They might get a little bit complacent. They'd go back to worshiping the other gods of the nations. And then the cycle would continue again and again and again and again. But the point of all this is that God's not a prosperity gospel God. Like when we talk about this, sometimes it can be easy to say, well, God, if I do this, then you'll do this. Now, that, 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 that's a prosperity gospel. God, if you do this, you will, you will bless me with food. You'll bless me with rain. You'll bless me with whatever. There is a measure of discipline that God does, but God doesn't work like that. What God is after with his people is what he's always after, relationship. I love the way one, um, one scholar puts it, God is a lawgiver, but foremost, he is a lover. He is one who wants to be near to his people. He is one who wants to be in relationship with his people. He's one who wants to be in relationship with you today. Wherever you are at in your spiritual journey, he wants to be in relationship with you today. And God's whole story is how do I bring those who are lost and far from me because of their sin, how do I bring them back? And we see that in the book of Ruth as it opens up with a famine and we're introduced to this family. Yesterday, I had the privilege of speaking at a, uh, at a wedding for some friends, and uh, I chose a very non-traditional wedding passage. Normally, you talk about love, or you talk about commitment, or you talk about covenant. Yesterday, here was the verse I gave them. Lord, you are my portion, my cup of blessing, you hold my future. This idea of portion is so rich. Um, this cross-references with a story in Luke's gospel where two sisters named Mary and Martha are, are friends of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, they and their brother Lazarus. And Jesus is in town and he's teaching. Martha is working her tail off trying to make sure everybody's needs are met. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus because she wants to be there because he's there. Martha, in a bit of a huff, uh, she goes up to um, Jesus and she says, Lord, would you please tell my sister to come and give me a hand? I'm paraphrasing here. Jesus responds to her, Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen the better portion. My charge to the couple yesterday, to Abby and Alex yesterday, was choose the right portion. Choose Jesus. As David says, Lord, you are my portion. You are my cup of blessing. And when we think about blessing, blessing is not primarily what I get. Blessing is God's strength for what he has called me to do. God's strength for what he has called me to do. We see this in Genesis, and we won't do this whole study today, but when, when God blesses Adam and Eve, he blesses them in order to give them strength to be the people who would watch over and care over the world that he had created. I give that to you because it's so important for us to remember that God, when he even sends famine to these people, or when he allows famine to take place in their lives, He's a God who wants to restore. He is a God who knows that they can't find what they need anywhere else. Their trust in a God to govern the rain. Uh, their trust in a God to govern fertility. Their trust in one of the other gods, lowercase g gods, of the land in which they had moved into. 
is wholly insufficient compared to what he can give. And he calls them to himself. A couple things as we jump into um, this see into this text that are really important. So we find in here that there's a man in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is a compound word in Hebrew. It's the word Beit Lechem, all right? Beit in Hebrew is house. Lechem is bread. So it's literally translated house of bread. It's interesting because a man left the house of bread in Judah and with his wife and two sons to to live in the land of Moab for a while. Why? Because there was a famine. So the place that's a house of bread has no bread. And if you don't have bread, I I know in our like carb conscious society, bread is sometimes gone, oh, I I shouldn't eat too much bread. Bread was one of the major staples of life. When you think bread, you've got to think life. Uh, I remember reading about um, the country of Egypt several years ago, and I was reading about some of the political turmoil that existed there during one of their seasons. What really kind of ticked off the Egyptians was when they started rationing the bread. That kind of rose, got them to rise up out of their seats, because when you mess with the bread, which is the source and the staple of life, it becomes a big deal. But here we have a, a Jewish man and his family leaving Judah, with his wife and two sons to live in the land of Moab. When we think about Moab, I want you to see where it's at. Moab is in the, in the um, bottom right portion of your screen. It's in what is now modern-day Jordan, okay? Modern-day Jordan over there. And you can see Bethlehem. It's circled up on the upper kind of central left part of your screen. In between these two um, countries or these two um, not states, but we'll call them countries for today. In between these two cities, these two areas geographically, you have a really big Dead Sea. In fact, it's the lowest place on earth. Something like 422 meters below the surface of the sea. And, and it's kind of crazy because you can see on this topographical map, uh, see if I can get my, yeah. You can see over here, there's a whole lot of activity going on. When my wife and I were in Jordan several years ago, we went down to the Dead Sea and um, I had a bad cold that day and descending down into this place my ears started popping it really started hurting but what it made me feel and experience is to go from a place like Bethlehem down to a place like Moab takes a little bit of work you don't just get up and drive over there and 20 minutes later you're at a place that has food it's a multi-day journey where you're getting all your belongings and we'll look at some photos of the land in just a minute here and you're going either up to Jerusalem, down this major highway, over to cross over here, and then you're having to come up to Moab. Or you're taking the southern route down to Tekoa, all the way down here to Engedi, all the way down to Masada, which is one of the Herodian fortresses, and you're probably crossing over to a place called Lisan, and you're coming over here, and you're finding your pathway up into the Moab mountains. Now, when you look at it this way, you're like, man, this must be like thousands of miles apart or something like that. Here we are in Bethlehem. These are the agricultural fields looking at modern-day Bethlehem. Here is Bethlehem around uh, 1931, so you can kind of see the approximate age of the village at the time of which we're talking here, and the road to Hebron is is labeled up there. Road to Jerusalem is the other way. Um, 
This is Bethlehem from the south, just kind of getting our bearings on where they started and where they're going back to. You can see Jerusalem is only a few miles. I think it's about 14, 15 miles to the north of where Bethlehem is, and it's obviously grown up over, over the area. And we have, again, we're back to this land of Moab. And, and so these people, they, they're, they're intentionally walking somewhere else. But there's something else you need to know. Moab isn't just a geographical region, what is in modern day Jordan. When we hear and we think about the land of Moab, um, for the ancient Jewish people, it signified some key points that we find in scripture. For example, in um, Genesis 19, we find out that Moab is originally inhabited by Lot's grandsons. Lot is the nephew of the patriarch Abraham, and that was kind of a rough go because they, they were born through incest with their grandfather Lot. It's kind of a sordid story. Um, not only that, Moab was not a close friend to Israel. Uh, in Numbers 22 through 24, it tells us that they would not let them pass through their region as, as Israel came up from Egypt. Moab wouldn't let them go through their region. So there's a little bit of tension there. In Numbers 25, it reveals a story in which Israel prostitutes themselves with women from Moab. And so you have a bunch of Jewish men going and intermarrying with people who do not have the same faith that they have. They, they actually come from from a distant, like, related family line, but they don't share the same faith. The, the, the Moabites are, are essentially pagan in their outward expressions towards faith in God. And so that's why there's a prohibition uh, for the Jewish people to not intermarry with them because God cares. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a racial thing. It's not a, uh, an ethnic thing. It has everything to do with taking two different groups of people who don't share the same core biblical values and putting them together because God knows when that happens, often what happens is the one who is a follower of Yahweh will be drawn away. And we see that in um, Numbers 25 in which this physical prostitution with the women of Moab leads to the acceptance of their gods in committing idolatry. And so there's a certain stigma that comes with Moabite women. And that's going to factor in when we're introduced to the person named Ruth and, and in Orpah, but especially Ruth, who is a Moabite woman in our story. Um, we also find, with regard to Moab, that Israel had excluded them from assembling before the Lord in Deuteronomy 23. And in very recent history, uh, you can find, if you want to read later, in Judges chapter 3, that Moab oppressed the Israelites. They, they were really harsh with them. And you can read the fun story of Ehud and the whole dagger going through the king of Moab, whose name is Eglon. And it goes in so far because he is so large that the actual handle of the blade goes in and never comes comes back out. It's quite a fun graphic story for nighttime, uh, right before you go to bed, especially if you have young kids. Um, so we have, we have in verse uh, one, in the second half of that, there's a famine in the land. You have an idea of where we're going. So there's a famine, and they go over to Moab. Um, we're given another clue in verse two here. It says the man's name was Elimelech. Now, Eli in Hebrew, it means my God. Melech is the word for king. So we're given a little clue as to um, his name means my God is king, which is interesting because they've left their homeland. They've left the city and the area which was given to them as their portion from God. And they've gone over to live in a land of a different king. 
this geographical switch seems to indicate a little bit about also the heart that's going on in this couple, in, in this family. So he leaves his country, he takes his family with him, um, and I love what one writer says. He says, Elimelech's departure from Moab may reflect his own doubts about the truth that his name declared. I like what someone else says where he says, it seems, however, that Elimelech designed his own solution instead of calling on God for mercy and repenting of the sins that plagued the nation during the dark days of the judges. Because remember, what happens first in our story is there's famine in the land. But then we're gonna see that there's actual famine that comes to this family through the loss of family members. There seems to be um, good evidence to suggest as we end chapter one, which we'll look at next week, that as um, Naomi comes back into Bethlehem, the people go, Naomi's back. In other words, there were some people who stayed during times of famine where God had placed them to be faithful. And I, I think what's going on here in this um, text is um, God never commands them to leave Bethlehem. And perhaps they never sought God's wisdom. And to our knowledge, uh, they don't. And, and they settled in another land. And we see other times in which in the scriptures where people of God leave where God has planted them. I think about Abraham who goes to Egypt during a famine. It's not called to go to Egypt. He's called to live in the land. And he goes down there and it leads to a whole mess of stuff. I also think about um, his son Isaac who does the exact same thing, which also leads to a lot of wholly messed up stuff within the story. And, and it strikes me that it's really important to plant yourself where God has you. There's a quote, um, and I don't have it. Well, here, let me see if I can get to it. Yeah, so here's Bethlehem. Um, here, here's a quote I want to share with you. It says, the onset of a famine in the promised land was always a test of faith, as well as, on occasion, an expression of divine chastisement. The proper response to such a test would be to stay in the land in dependence on God as did the majority of the residents of Bethlehem. And I, th I think that quote kind of summarizes where they're at. But if I'm honest, I, I, I can't blame Elimelech too much. I, if there was famine in the land, and my family was having a hard time eating, I'd be really tempted to say, what do I do in order to make sure that my family is cared for? What do I do to provide? But this is the tension with dependence because we all experience times in our life in which we experience a fan of a, we spirit, we experience a one, <laughs> we experience a famine of one kind or another. That's what I meant to say. We experience a famine of one kind or another. Sometimes those famines are due to just natural causes in, in living in a sinful world. Sometimes those famines are due um, to the chastening of God. Sometimes those famines are experienced because we've chosen to walk in sin and we're reaping the consequences of that sin. Th there's a whole lot of reasons for famine. This is, I think, the reason for this famine. So I don't want to suggest that every famine is God's divine chastisement upon you. I don't think that's the case. But I do think it is important for us to realize that in every famine we are given a choice 
will we draw near to God or will we try to pick up our own selves by our own bootstraps and make our own way? God invites us to draw near to him. Um, just a little bit more about the names here. So you, you, you've got um, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king. You have Naomi, whose name means pleasant, which we're going to find out is quite a contrast to her circumstances, and she'll make a big point of that in the passage we look at next week. Her son's name, Machlon, means sickly, um, and her other son's name is Kilion, which means weak or failing. Hey guys, uh, young men, how would you like to be named weak or failing or sickly? That's a fantastic, um, fa- fantastic name. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, and then we're introduced to a person named Ruth. And Ruth will be the topic that we'll talk about a lot next week. Her name means refreshment, friendship, companion. It can mean satiation. It can also mean friend and how God meets us in our famines through people. But that's next week's message. At the outset of the story, we find incredible loss. Despite the things that brought Naomi to this place, Naomi finds herself less than pleasant. She is without male leadership, without provision. She is living in a foreign land. And in many ways, the famine of her life resembles the famine that they left in Bethlehem. The story of Ruth is a story how God redeems and restores brokenness through his people, especially through a godly woman, Ruth, and a kinsman redeemer, Boaz. So here's the trek that they took. Famine in the land, they take the northern route. They walk down. This is the plains of Moab, looking at it from the southwest across the sea. The plains of Moab, they're walking up there. There's camels in there. If you can find them, they're really small. Um, And then you come to the southern route. If you go up this way, you go the Judean wilderness, as we saw on the map, down to Tekoa, route to Engedi, and you have all this great hiking that you get to do. You get to cross this kind of wilderness. Masada here is a Herodian fortress in the midst of the Judean wilderness. It's absolutely breathtaking and just stunning how barren it is throughout there. But they would have come down, if they came this route, down through Engedi, and they would have followed a, a route down here and crossed over at Lisan. But once they cross, they've got to go over to Moab and they come up into Moab. And here we have um, the area of Moab. You can kind of see that towards your right, but this whole area, they have to find their way up. Uh, And then they come to perhaps one of the major cities of Moab. This is Kerak, the ancient Moabite capital, in which they find great famine. Here, the scripture says that they settled. And Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. She's left with her two sons. But then it says, her sons took Moabite women as their wives. As a, as a Jewish parent, this would have been like a dagger. <laughs> like, oh, you're taking people who are not of the same faith. One was named Orpah, the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years. So they're there for quite a bit of time. Both Machlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. To think about what this means for her, if you're a widow in the ancient period, you're very open to being taken advantage of. You have no protector. You have no one to take care of you in your old age. If your husband dies and you have no sons, you're going, what do I do? 
And I think it's desperation in part that drives her back to the land. It's also that we find out in the next section here that the Lord pays attention to his people in the actual physical famine that's in the land. And it's after that she finds out that there's food there, she goes back to her people. But here she sits in this time of famine. And the question is, is what does she do in famine? Famine, as I've talked about, already, they come for various reasons. There's a natural effect of the curse that brings hardship on this world. Genesis 3, 17 through 19 seem to, seem to indicate that. There's this divine judgment discipline that I've talked about. You can look at places like 2 Samuel 24 or Hebrews 12, 5 through 6 that talk about that God, God disciplines those whom he loves. He chastens those who are his because he wants to draw them back to himself. And oftentimes it's in challenging times when we've hit the end of our rope, we go, God, I don't know what else to do. And he goes, exactly turn to me. We also have famines that come in our life that, that are part of our testing or refinement. And in fact, uh, James talks about this in chapter one of his letter in the New Testament where he says, consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So God uses times of testing in our life to refine us, to make us more mature. There's also famines that arise from spiritual warfare. If you, if you look at Ephesians 6 as we did, I think last summer, you'll, you'll find that we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities of this world. So we can experience um, spiritual oppression that can lead to famines in our lives. We can also experience um, famines and, and there may be some sort of divine working beyond our understanding. And, and this is part of Job's story, who finds himself, the text describes him as righteous. God allows Job to be tested by the adversary. And yet, there's a glory of God, and there's a pruning of Job, and a growth of Job that goes on there that Job doesn't understand, and he's left with one thing. Do I trust God in the midst of my famine? Do I draw near to God? Will I praise God in my famine? Or will I move on and do whatever I feel like trying to meet my needs apart from God? And, and it begs the question, are you in a famine? I, I think all of us at one point or another, we enter into a famine moment. We enter into a job loss or tension at a job. We, we enter into a season of life where we just don't know where to turn. We, we just feel like we're rudderless. We might uh, experience a famine through the loss of a loved one. We might experience famine through sickness within our family or famine uh, or sickness within uh, our, ourselves personally. Th these are times in which they, they come in our lives as part of living in a broken world, but God invites us in those moments to draw near to him. Because remember, the, the point of the Christian life that we looked at last week is, is, is to know God. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him. In fact, everything for Paul became second. It was of 
unimportance compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And and as we consider famines for the last few minutes here, I want to give us some helpful direction for how we turn to God in famine. If you're not in one now, you'll probably be in one sometime because that's kind of the pattern of living in a broken, fallen world. And it's the pattern of God maturing and developing his people. How do we respond to famine moments? The first is we, we, we draw near to God. That's maybe kind of the overall idea. But how do we do that? Um, the first thing I want to suggest to you is that we praise God. Praise God. It's perhaps one of the most counterintuitive things when we're struggling through something to say, in the midst of this God, you are good. In the midst of this God, you are in control. And we can do that not just based upon our feelings. We can do that based upon what God has done for us. The salvation that he has brought to people through Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to be rejected. He knows what it means to walk on earth with human flesh. He knows what it means, which means he is the perfect advocate for us to go to. But praising God begins setting our hearts right towards God. So in the midst of our famines, we don't get sucked down into all the detail of this but we constantly lift our eyes to the hills. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Praise is one of the great, powerful things to declare in the midst of trouble because it takes the attention off of us and it puts our eyes squarely on the God who has redeemed and saved us. And if he can do that, we can trust him with whatever famine we are facing right now. The first one is praise. The second one is confess. It it may be that the famine that we experience is, is not something that we need to confess sin for, but it may be that we find ourselves in the middle of a famine, a broken relationship, or, or down a path of constant perpetual sin that we need to confess to God. Now, um, confession is important. It, it essentially means to, um, to agree with what God has said is true. To say, God, I confess that this is not, this part of my life is not in keeping with what you want from me. We, we, we don't confess in order to be loved by God again, though. Like, we are always loved by God. We, we, we confess to set our hearts aright upon what God has said is true. And God will God will bring conviction to his sons and daughters by the Holy Spirit. Um, And confession is a part of acting upon that um, conviction that we sense. But it's perhaps important to understand that there's a difference between conviction by the Holy Spirit and the accusations that we may feel that um, um, that come through attacks of the enemy. Let me put it this way. Um, Conviction by the Holy Spirit, when there's sin in our life, it shines um, the light of God's truth on a specific behavior so that we know and understand clearly what we have done and how it differs from what God has said. Conviction by the Holy Spirit does not attack our identity in Christ. It's a way that God seeks to make us more like who we have been made to be in Christ's image. Um, 
it, it doesn't attack our identity in Christ, but it leads us down a path of repentance. And so if, if you are sensing in your life that you are convicted by the Holy Spirit regarding sin or waywardness in your life, know that it's God's, it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. And repentance, true repentance, is a change of mind which leads to a change of behavior. Right? What God wants to do is he wants to, first of all, correct the lie that you're believing about God, yourself, or others. He wants to correct that lie in your mind, but he doesn't want to just stop there. He wants the correction of the lie in the mind to become a new path in the power of God in which you walk now in light of the truth you have received. That's what repentance is. It's, it's a change of mind which leads to a change of behavior. And sometimes the famines that we experience um, cause us to go down those things and God convicts us by his spirit. But there's also this feeling of conviction that could be not conviction of the Holy Spirit. It, it could be um, Satan's accusations that come at us. And you might describe Satan's accusations this way. They're vague and they're not specific. They, they produce a false guilt which leads to shame, right? Shame, <laughs> when you became a new believer in Christ, God took away your shame and he nailed it to the cross. Shame is not something God wants you to walk in. Now you can feel shame for something you have done, but God's kindness actually restores you to himself. What shame tends to do is go, oh, I just can't believe I did that. I, I just I, I can't show my face there anymore. I feel ashamed. God wants you to walk into the light of his truth, but many times the adversary will come and he will say, don't you know you're dumb, you're stupid, you can't do anything right. I can't believe I said that. Anybody ever had, <laughs> when you talk for a living, you're like, oh my, I can't believe I said that, right? These accusations that come from the adversary, they can produce false guilt, which leads to shame, and ultimately their identity-centered attacks. Things like, I'm dumb, I'm stupid, I'm worthless, I'm the problem. If you hear those, those messages in your head, friends, that is not a word of the Lord. Because you are loved because you are accepted, because you are chosen, because you are God's son and God's daughter. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, that's who you are. Now God's going to want to take who you are, and he's going to want to line it up in how you walk. That's the process of sanctification here. But that's what conviction of the Holy Spirit does. I want you to understand that. In the type of famine in which we may be experiencing discipline, Know that if you are enduring discipline, God does this because he loves you. I think I've told you this story before. Um, when I was a young kid, I was probably in middle school. We were in our 1990 um, red van, and we were about a half a mile from my parents' house on the way home from church, which is, of course, the time when Jeremy chooses to mouth off in middle school, and I was mouthing off to my parents or to my siblings. My dad stops the car. We're out in the middle of the country, right? We're half a mile from home. He stops the car, and he just looks at me with love and care in his eye and a lot of frustration, perhaps, and he goes, get out. <laughs> I get out of the car. I shut the door. I'm, I'm hotter than can be. Like, I'm just, oh, fine, I'm gonna walk home. I, like, I'd, I'd been down that road before. I knew where I was going, but the next thing I experienced was not the car slowly moving away, going back home. It was my dad's door opening, my dad getting out, my mom sliding over, the door shutting, and the van going off, leaving me and my dad on this country road in southern Ohio 
with a half-mile walk that was very quiet, I'm certain, for me to not experience, well, for me, number one, to experience discipline, but to experience discipline with love. Because the purpose of discipline in our life is not, when God disciplines his children, he's not pushing you away. He's actually wanting to draw you near. I'll tell you, as a kid, I was like, oh, why did my dad get out of the car? I just want to stew about this, and I just want to get on my high horse all the way home so I can talk to myself and like convince myself that I was justified and whatever. But what my dad did in that sense is he got out and he said, no, you are, dis- you are being disciplined, but I want you to know whose you are. I want you to know that you're loved, you're cared for, you're accepted. You are still a part of this family because your last name is Cobb because you're part of our family. Now I get it, I tell that story sometimes, and I have, say, I have people say, I, I don't know what it means to call God a father. I have a family member who struggled with that. Not, not my immediate family, just distant family, um, who struggled with that be, because their experience of father was so different than that. But that's a small, small portion of how much God the Father loves you and how he wants to say, my child, let's talk and let's walk. Let's burn off some of this energy and let's talk about what it means for you to walk in keeping with my truth because you're my son. Not to attain, not to earn, not to, not to make yourself anything because you've already been made the righteousness of Christ. If you're enduring discipline, know that God disciplines you because he loves you. And discipline is designed to draw you near, which is not the way that we tend to want to feel close in that moment. Like, we, we, we generally don't want to be near when we're being disciplined. But dads, moms, let discipline in your life and in your family be something where you don't just shun away. You actually draw near to your kid. You say, yeah, that was wrong. We still love you. And we're going to walk this path together because I'm here for you. And I'm here for God's best in your life and God's best for your future. So we, we've talked about praising God, confessing any no sin to God, dealing with conviction and Satan's accusations, being uh, walking in repentance, enduring discipline. Finally, I've already quoted this one to you. There may be times of testing that are famine moments. And James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face testing and trials of many kinds because they produce perseverance. Perdu- uh, perseverance leads to maturity and being complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, it is part of the sanctification process. And I know that maybe doesn't answer all the questions about uh, how do I know that this is a famine of this or of this. And, and in fact, I, I, from the outside looking in, I probably don't know why God is causing a famine in anyone's life. But as I experience and as we experience famines in our own lives, we can go to God even with our, even with our inability to understand why we, we are in the, the famine that we are experiencing. We can go to God and say, God, I, I don't know what you have for me here. I don't know what you want to teach me. But you are good. And I'm going to proclaim that in the midst of this. What do we do in famines? Famines are opportunities to draw near to God 
And as the New Testament so brilliantly and beautifully puts, draw near to God, God draws near to you. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we experience a lot of struggle in this world. Some of it is at the hand of just being in this world. Some of it is at the hand of choosing to walk in our own strength and not yours. God, some of it is your pruning and it's your working in our lives to make us more like your son. And God, while we may not fully understand which path we are in, I pray that you would help us to draw near to you. God, we trust your spirit who leads and guides us into truth. We, we trust him to reveal to us exactly what we need and exactly when we need it. But God, it can be really easy. It can be really easy in the hard days to, to, to really struggle with what your plan is. In the middle of those times, God, w- w- would you... Would you remind us that your grace is sufficient for us, that your power is made perfect in our weakness, and that we can boast not about our situation or about our own strength, but we can boast in the finished work of Jesus, his death and resurrection, which brings life to all who confess him as Lord. Thank you, God, for the hope that we have, not just for this world, but for the world to come. Lord, I I bless you and I thank you for today. Thank you for the chance that we have to celebrate um, so many things, the giving of your spirit, the the men and women throughout our nation's history who have given their lives and many of them who experience famine moments from, from times being in battle. And God, we thank you for those who have given their lives as we celebrate on Memorial Day. And how, Pastor Tom said, those point us forward to the one who, who gave his life that we might be reconciled from our battle with sin through his death and resurrection. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Messiah and our Redeemer. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.